Jesus, I'm, I'm just so thankful for who you are and for what you do. So thankful for your salvation. And that it is real. That you really, really do change hearts. It's a miracle that only you can do. Thank you for the lives that you've changed in this room this morning. Lord, just in this room, just in this room this morning, we, we don't have the time, not just here this morning, but there's just not enough time forever to tell of all that you have done. The way that you have saved us. The way that you've changed us. And you continue to do it. Father, you're so good. You're so good. I just thank you for the unbelievable privilege of being allowed to sing to you, to worship you this morning. Please have your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. If you got your Bibles, please grab them and go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 14 verses. Revelation chapter 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and, your blood, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks again for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, this picture that is a promise that we just read. That right now, heaven rules. There's glorious worship going on in heaven right now. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth here among us as it is in heaven. Please open the eyes of our heart that we can see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey man, man, I don't know if you guys have been tracking, reading through Revelation over the last couple weeks. This is where the Bible reading plan has us. If you're visiting with us this morning and you're like, Revelation isn't usually the place for Christmas, <laughs> the Christmas season. Um, we've been reading through the New Testament this year, one chapter a day, five days a week, and right now it's got us in Revelation. But man, I'm glad we are in Revelation right now. I have, I have needed Revelation. Do not be intimidated by Revelation, folks. It is... It is just beautiful. It is, it is absolutely glorious. And uh, all of God's word is wonderful and inspired and helpful and profitable. But Revelation has kind of its own special glory to it. Um, and uh, to get this message down in us really changes. Reading Revelation can be a little bit like going to a foreign country for the first time. I remember when I... Uh, the first and only time that I went to Manila, Philippines, um, you step off the airplane and into the airport, and then you finally step out of the airport, out into the street, and the Manila um, metropolitan, greater metropolitan area is a, is a place of about between 12 and 13 million people. And so it's pretty big, and there's just all these different, you know, sights and sounds and smells and customs and languages and people and scenery, and you're just, and some of it's the same, but much of it is, is kind of unfamiliar. Too. And that's how it can kind of be wandering into the book of Revelation is that you see these sights and sounds and smells and languages and customs and things that you're not quite fully sure what to do with. Um, but man, if we'll just, if just slow down, uh, it is absolutely wonderful and it's absolutely glorious. I ate things in the Philippines that I never thought I would eat. I ate a fish with the eyeballs still in it. <clears throat> True story. You know what? It was pretty good. Now, if you'd have tried to, you know, 
tempt me to do that here in America, I would have said, no, thank you, I'll take the cheeseburger. Um, in Revelation, there can be some things, well, eyeballs is kind of a good example because there's creatures here, if you read chapter 4, also chapter 5, with eyes all over them. So it's a little bit weird, but it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's really neat. And so, b- because there can be so much imagery and stuff going on um, in this book, I want to just kind of approach this a little bit simply this morning. I just want to ask three questions of this chapter that we just read, and I'll try to give a lot of explanation and show why it is so awesome as we go along. But the three questions are this, is what is this scroll, who is this Christ, and how should we respond? What is this scroll, who is this Christ, and how must we respond? So here's what's happening is, first of all, John, the Apostle John, who probably is the last of the apostles at this point because the rest have all been martyred. Um, uh, now, if you think, some, I've heard people say before that, like, because, you know, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, in much of his writings, um, that they think that, you know, God was kind of like doing him a favor and loved him more, and that's why he wasn't martyred or, di- or you know, di- lived a little bit longer than the rest. But I don't really think that's a great argument. Uh, not according to the Bible, but according to church history, and most historians believe that it's true, is that John was most likely boiled alive in oil. Okay? But he didn't die. And so then they exiled him to Patmos, which is where he is currently as he's receiving this revelation, this, this apocalyptic vision uh, from the risen Christ. And so John is exiled on the island of Patmos. <laughs> Just to catch you up a little bit, the beginning of uh, you know, the book, chapter one, the risen Christ comes to him with eyes like fire, the, his face shining like the sun in all of its strength, the sound of his voice like thunder and like rushing mighty water. And when John sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead. Jesus lays his hands on him, raises him up, tells him to write down what he's about to see. He, he's given these messages to give to these seven churches that existed in Asia Minor back in that day. And then in chapters two and three, you have these letters to the seven churches, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And then in chapter four, all of a sudden, John is caught up into the spirit into heaven. Okay, and so chapter four, verse one, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place after this. And so John is somehow supernaturally caught up in the spirit into heaven, into the very throne room of heaven. If you read chapter four, the word throne is repeated many times. Uh, There's only 11 verses in chapter four, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 times in chapter four and those 11 verses, the word throne is mentioned. And so if you're kind of picturing this as a movie, John is caught up into heaven, into this new scenery that's somewhat unfamiliar to him. And the camera, is, is the focal point of the camera is focused on this throne. And not, not a throne, but the throne. And there's other thrones around it, but this throne in the middle is different than any other throne, and on it sits Almighty God. Okay? But then, as you come to chapter 5, again, if you're picturing this kind of like a movie, the camera is on the throne, but now in chapter 5, the camera zooms in on something in the hand of him who sits on the throne. And in the hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll. And the scroll is the central theme or idea that we need to understand here as we move into chapter, chapter 5. And so again, back in chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? So now, again, this scroll was at the center of everything. 
And there's an angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who can open the scroll? Opening the scroll is really, really, really important, so we have to understand what this scroll is. Now, there's, there's a fair bit of, of debate uh, among scholars and theologians as to what exactly this scroll is. Um, all of them are kind of right. We're not told really specifically, uh, yet we can gain a pretty good understanding um, of what it is. And it, it, it could be said several different ways, and that's why there's kind of some kind of some debate. Yet here's the three things, just for the sake of simplicity, I would kind of boil this down to three things that this scroll is that I want to show you here this morning and why it's so important. Number one, the scroll is the contents of this book. Number two, it is the counsel of God's eternal will. And number three, it is Christ's claim as Lord of his kingdom. Okay? It is the, the scroll is the contents of this book, of, of the book of Revelation specifically. It is the contents of this book, it is the counsel of his will, and it is Christ's claim as Lord of his kingdom. Now, where am I getting this? Number one, the contents of this book. <clears throat> What's going to happen throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, you'll pick this up right away in chapter six, is that this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And what you have in chapter six are the, kind of the, the peeling back or the opening of each one of these seals. As each one of these seals is opened, we're, we're, we're told, it's described for us, what then happens on earth uh, according to what's in the scroll as it's being opened. The, the whole book of Revelation kind of is organized around several groups of seven. You have uh, here at the beginning, you've got these seven seals, and then out of the seven seals come seven trumpets, and eventually out of seven trumpets come seven bowls. But again, it all goes back to the seven seals. So you've got seven seals, and then when the seventh seal is opened, all of a sudden there's seven trumpets, and then when the last trumpet is blown, then there's seven bowls. Okay, so it all comes back, though, to these seven seals. So uh, the point being is that the contents of the scroll are, are the contents of this book, the rest of the book of Revelation. Secondly, it is the counsel of his will. It is the counsel of God's eternal will. Ephesians chapter 1, listen closely, okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, just to kind of sum up what this is. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 9 through 11, he says, and he has made known to us, God has made known to us, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now here's what that just said. When he talks about the mystery of his will in verse 9, the counsel of his will in verse 11, it is his eternal decree, the counsel of his will, from all eternity past, that Christ will rule and reign. That all things in heaven and on earth are going to be brought together under one head who is Christ. And that is what you have throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is you have God's eternal decree from all of eternity past, even though man has tried to you know, shake his fist at God and man has tried to accomplish his will and we've tried to build our towers of Babel and make a name great for ourselves, God's will will stand. Amen? And that's what you see throughout the rest of the book. So it is the contents of this book, it is the counsel of his will, and then again, these things overlap, they're not mutually exclusive. But thirdly, it is Christ's claim as Lord of his kingdom. His kingdom being the entire universe. And here's what I want you to understand, is that there is going to be a day, folks, this is where everything is headed. Where everything is headed is that the kingdom of God is going to come down and it is going to dwell fully, finally, totally, completely here on earth. And the kingdom of God is going to become one with the kingdom of man. But Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign here on earth in the flesh in, with perfect justice, perfect righteousness. 
There will be no more sin. There will be no more evil. He will wipe away every tear from every eye for those that know him. And right now we live in this time in the kingdom where it's already, but it's not yet. It's already because he's ascended. He's, he's already conquered through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he sent his spirit, and his spirit lives in us. And that's why when, when, when you give your heart to Christ, when you become born again, you now become homesick for a place that you've never been because heaven is now in you. The spirit of God is now in you. But we're not in the final, complete state of that yet. Revelation <coughs> chapter 11 verses 15 and 16, and Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Okay, listen, listen carefully here <clears throat> to where I'm getting this from. Revelation chapter 11, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, listen to what they said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay? So all of creation, all of God's eternal plan has always been to dwell, to be with, in the closest way possible, with his people. And this, this scroll is this, this covenant, this plan, this counsel, this claim to Christ having his throne, being Lord of his kingdom. And it is absolutely going to pass, but, but there's an issue here, and I've kind of tipped my hand, we know, we know what's coming, we read the whole chapter, but if this doesn't happen, then the earth remains a mess. If no one is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, then all the sin, all the hurt, all the pain, all the abuse, all the lying, all the cheating, all the immorality, the adultery, the wickedness of mankind is going to last forever. Who is worthy to, to open the scroll, to take the scroll and open its seals? And, and again, heaven wants us to feel this. It's why there's verse 3. <laughs> no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth. That's just a biblical way of saying it. There ain't nobody, nobody anywhere is worthy to make this thing right. And because nobody is worthy to make this thing right, John weeps. And folks, before we get to the good news that's coming, you need to feel this. Do you understand this morning that there is absolutely, positively no hope for you or for your children or for your family or for the world or anyone in it apart from Jesus Christ? There is none. And John, John knows this, and he knows somewhat of, like the importance of this scroll, as I've just explained. And, he, and again, it's kind of an awkward situation. Because he, he, he's in heaven, and man, there's worship going on back in chapter 4, and you know everybody's bowing down, and John's crying. He's crying. But man, you got to love verse 5. Somebody better say amen when I read verse 5. It's verse 5. Oh, I love verse 5. 
this is awesome. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But I, I'm, I'm not kidding, guys. I just, I, it makes me cry. But one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. <laughs> Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. Oh, that is awesome. All the sin, all the wickedness, all the pain, all the slavery, all the bondage that we experience on this earth. It is not going to last forever. But the only reason it is not going to last forever is because Jesus Christ is worthy. Oh, because he is worthy to take the scroll and to open these seals. Unbelievable. Again, the question on the floor in heaven is who is worthy? Who is worthy? Well, no one is worthy. And you would ask then, well, what makes a person worthy? Well, we're given a couple clues. Number one, whoever's worthy needs to conquer. Which is why he says in verse five, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, he has conquered. It's literally victorious. Uh, the word here, ironically enough, is the word uh, nikao. It's where Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, got the name Nike. It's a real word. Nike is a Greek word that means victory or conquer, as it's translated here in the English. Um, nikao. The irony in that is that what is Nike's slogan? Anybody? Just what? Just do it. Yeah, just do it, man. Just do it. Buy our clothes, buy our shoes, buy our gear, just do it. You can be that star athlete, that star soccer player, basketball player, baseball player, football player, whatever. Just do it. Well, you know, maybe. Maybe Nike will help you do that. But when it comes to dealing with our sin, we can't just do it, folks. <laughs> At all. We just don't do it over and over and over and over again. But Jesus Christ has conquered Nikao. He's the only one that can just do it, and he did it on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this, this idea of worthiness, again, this is in some sense the, the kind of the, the title deed to the whole earth to the whole universe would be another way to describe what's on the scroll. And so, so you know, with varying levels of responsibility, uh, you know, it requires varying levels of worthiness, okay? So when you go to get your license, your driver's license, my oldest one will be able to get his license next year. Please pray for me. Please, please. Um, and mainly pray that he's a much better driver than I was. When I got my license, Took a test, passed the test the first time, therefore I was worthy. 
to get my driver's license. But three months after I got my driver's license, I got in a wreck in front of the Dutch cupboard, totaled my car. Three months after that, I got in another wreck in front of the Dutch cupboard. Something about the Dutch cupboard, man. Stay, I'm just kidding. Um, at that point, I went before a judge, and he deemed me unworthy to have my license for 60 days. <laughs> True story. Because, because, again, there's a responsibility to driving, and so you need to be, there needs to be a test of worthiness as to whether or not you're able to handle that responsibility. This test of worthiness is not just for a driver's license. It's to rule and reign in righteousness according to God's standard, not just the earth, but the entire universe. And Christ alone is worthy to do that. He alone has conquered uh, in this way. And so that's what the scroll is about. That's what, what the scroll is. Now let's continue to connect this and ask the second question. Not only what is the scroll, but who is this Christ? Well, they've already partly said, you know, he, he's worthy, first of all. But very, some very specific imagery given, though, here of Christ. And, and again, a very um, important key, uh, if we're to follow him as his disciples, how we too uh, can walk in victory, how we too can conquer in the way that he conquered, um, not on our own, but, but because of what he's done. Uh, the main picture here that we have is that who is this Christ? He is the lion and the lamb. He is the lion and the lamb. So again, verse 5, the elder says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now, the image of the root of David, I won't spend a lot of time on this just for the sake of time, but this is a prophecy from uh, Isaiah chapter 11, both Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and verse 10. It says two different things, and again, this is where Christ was like the mystery hidden in ages past, that, that he was both this lion and this lamb, that he was, he was a conqueror, yet he was going to do it by laying down his life. And so, um, in Isaiah chapter 1, you have this prophecy that there shall come forth, uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear his fruit. So in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus is this branch that's going to come forth from the family tree, from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father. But then a few verses later, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it says, in, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand for a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place uh, shall be glorious. So in verse 10 then, he's called the root of Jesse. That Jesus was the root. So he's both the root and the shoot. He's both the root and, and the branch. You know, like, how can that be? Well, it was a clue, an Old Testament shadow, a clue that this, was, that this Christ, this Messiah that was going to come, is going to be unlike any other person. And he was. That's why he is, he's the God man. But you've got that imagery there of the root of David, but then also he's the lion and the lamb. And, and again, look closely at what happens here. John is told, he hears from the elder, that the lion of the tribe of Judah, which again was an Old Testament prophecy out of uh, the book of uh, Genesis, that this Messiah was going to come, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. But then verse 6, John turns and he looks. So he hears that it's the lion of Judah, then verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he hears that it's the lion that is worthy, that is conquered, but he turns and he sees a lamb. And it's the same person. It is Christ. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And here's why that's important. is because if he was only the lion of the tribe of Judah, make no doubt about it, he would still rule, he would still reign, but there would be no hope for us. None. In righteousness and justice, he could have condemned all of us to eternal punishment. But he's not just the lion of Judah. He's also the lamb that was slain. So verse 7 and 8, John turns then and he sees this lamb. It says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. So again, they're speaking of his worthiness. He is conquered. For you were slain, and what has he done? How has he conquered? Why is he worthy? Who is this Christ, this lion and this lamb? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Is it because he is both the lion and the lamb? He laid down his life in a way that ultimately will destroy sin, but also save us from it. Because we are the cause of sin. And so he's able to love us and to save us from our sin. And this idea here of ransomed, you know, it's the idea uh, very closely associated with it would be that, uh, the imagery of slavery. That you ransom, you buy back somebody that's been enslaved. In Revelation chapter one, you have wording that's very close to the same, although it's just slightly different. He uses the word freed. Uh, Listen to what it says here. In uh, Revelation chapter one, verse five, it says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and of the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So here you've got, he's ransomed us, and then in chapter 1, verse 5, that he's freed us, ransomed and freed. From what? From our sins, it says. From our sins. Folks, if you call Mercy Hill home, I know that you've heard me say this before, but please, we all need to be reminded of it is that the greatest issue in your life this morning isn't that, you know, you're not good looking enough or you don't have enough money or you're not popular enough or you don't have enough Facebook friends or you didn't get enough likes on Instagram. The great issue in your life is that you are a sinner and you are in bondage to this sin. You cannot be free from it on your own. Please stop trying. Please. You cannot get free from it on your own. 
Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can set you free from your sin. Like, Eric, I'm a Christian. I know that. Well, the reason you continue to walk in habitual sin and bondage to it, again, we all struggle with sin. We're going to until the day we go home to glory and the kingdom of God is fully here. But if you are in habitual bondage, if you feel like you're living in slavery to sin, in some way, shape, or form, it is because you are not letting the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain be Lord of your life. Because he conquers. He does it. He just does it. You just don't do it. Um, the interns and I went up to Alistair Begg's church a couple weeks ago. Alistair Begg has an awesome bookstore. Um, it's not like the bookstores around here. Uh, it's just all old school good guys, is the way I like to put it. Puritans and Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and the largest section of books at his bookstore is not Amish romance novels. Um, sorry, I couldn't let that go. That's a true story. Well, never mind. Anyway, moving right along. My, favorite, my personal favorite title. I shouldn't go down this road, but I'm going to. Um, my personal favorite title, The Hawaiian Quilt. It's a true story. It's a riveting sequel to the first one, like the something else quilt, I don't remember. Anyway, I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did. Um, but I got a book up there by an old school good guy, John Owen. Uh, 1600s uh, Puritan. And <laughs> these guys wouldn't have been bestsellers with their titles, uh, but the title is great. Um, or at least nowadays they wouldn't be bestsellers, but it's called Indwelling Sin in Believers. Indwelling Sin in Believers. Man, I'm telling you guys, they just talk in ways that we don't even talk. Um, the entire book is based off of Romans chapter 7, verse 21, where Paul says, I find then this law at work, that when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. This is the reality for a believer. That's why Paul goes on and he says, Our wretched man that I am, things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. Why? Because I find this law at work. That when I want to do good, I who, who've been saved now, Christ has put his spirit in me, that evil is right there with me though still. And, and I just read it because he makes a big deal about the hopelessness of conquering our sin in any way apart from Christ. And again, you're like, well, that sounds kind of depressing. Listen, I'm, I'm convinced this is the reason why we don't live in victory and why we don't live in freedom. is because we think that we can just, you know, well, Nike says I can just do it. No, you can't. And so he says this, he says, but against this God we carry about in us an enmity, or another word, a better word would be, would be hostility. I'll just use the word hostility. Enmity is kind of an old school word. But against this God we carry about in us, even us who are redeemed, a hostility all of our days, incapable of cure or reconciliation. Destroyed it shall be, but cured it cannot be. Destroyed it shall be, but cured it cannot be. He goes on, he says, it can submit to no terms of peace, not even a truce. This enemy, speaking of sin, this enemy is never quiet and never conquered. No man can expect rest from lust except by its death, or of absolute freedom except by his own death. Some seek peace from their corruptions by trying to satisfy them, making provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 
As the apostle calls it, this is to douse a, this is to douse a fire using combustible materials. They will only inflame and increase it. If we part with some of our goods for an enemy, it may satisfy him, but hostility itself will have everything and is not more satisfied than if you had received nothing than if it had received nothing at all. Listen, he says you cannot bargain with fire to take out only part of the house. All you can do is put the fire out. Again, it cannot be cured, it must be destroyed. Do you view your sin that way? Or are you trying to bargain with the fire? If it could be bargained with, with, Christ wouldn't have died. God wouldn't have had his son shed his precious blood if the fire of your indwelling sin could just be bargained with or tamed. It had to be destroyed. And Christ did that. Yeah, I think I've used this illustration before, but one of my favorite lines in Lord of the Rings, you've got these little hobbits and they've got the ring and they're going on this little mission, but they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. And these big, these uh, black riders, these Mazgul, these are really, really kind of the mean, nasty guys in the movie. And they're coming after these hobbits and, and they've encountered them, but they've kind of escaped once before. And, and all of a sudden this guy, Aragon, who's the, eventually going to be the king, he comes into the scene and, and he, he grabs one of the hobbits, Frodo because he's accidentally slipped the ring on his finger and he knows now that these dark riders are coming after him and going to try to take him out. And so he takes him and he takes him aside in the room and Frodo's kind of freaking out and he looks at Frodo and he goes, are you frightened? And Frodo goes, yes. And he goes, you're not nearly frightened enough. He goes, I know what hunts you. That's how most of us deal with our sin. Are you frightened? Oh, yeah, I'm frightened. You're not nearly frightened enough. Not nearly. The Bible's very clear on what hunts you. It's a hostility that lies within, and only Christ can defeat it. Only Christ. No one else. Again, it's an imagery of being set free or being ransomed. Parents, if, if, if you can try to imagine, now this analogy is going to break down, okay? But just try. If you can imagine your kids being taken and your kids being forced into slavery. But not only your kids, but the reason your kids are taken and put into slavery is because you yourself are taken and put into slavery. And your parents before you were taken and put into slavery. But it wasn't just that they were taken or you were taken against their wills. You, they and you and your parents, and we also chose it. We chose that slavery. And there's absolutely no hope forever of getting out. Your children enslaved by a cruel taskmaster forever. But if there was one who could come and could set them free, what would be your response to that one? What would be your response to the only hero of the story that could come and set them and you and many others free 
from this cruel taskmaster from whom there is no escape in your own power? Would that liberator, would that hero deserve a half-hearted response? Would they deserve just a little bit of worship when it's convenient? Would they deserve just, just a little bit of prayer? Just a little bit of obedience when it's convenient? If it's not too much trouble? Or would they deserve absolutely everything? And again, the third question that I wanted to ask here is, how must we respond? What is this scroll? Who is this Christ? And how must we respond? Well, first of all, the only response when you understand the importance of the scroll being opened so that all this wickedness can be dealt with, and then second of all, when you understand that Christ alone, the Lion of the Lamb, is the only one who's worthy, the only one who's conquered, the first response is pretty clear in the rest of the chapter. It is unbridled, unreserved, 100%, all in, whole hog, whatever other adjective you want to put in there, it is total, absolute surrender and worship. That's what it is. And anything less than that shows that we just don't get it. We just don't get it. We still don't know what hunts us. And we're not nearly frightened enough. You have three different sets of worship here, and they overlap. First of all, the elders in verses 9 through 10. I've read part of it already, but the elders sing a new song. These elders that are gathered around the throne. They've got thrones. They're kind of big wigs, but nothing compared to the one who sits on the throne. They sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And there's another group that joins in here. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. And that's just a biblical way of saying a whole bunch, whole bunch, more than you can number. And they join in, verse 12, saying with a loud voice. Notice they're not singing quietly. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then verse 13, some more are going to join in. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Again, just everywhere, everybody that understands what's happening here with this lion and this lamb and him taking the scroll. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen Amen means let it be so. That's why we say amen at the end of our prayer. Somebody pray something, you say amen. We're saying let it be so. Yes, Lord. Do it. And the elders fell down again. And they worshipped. Is this your response to what the Lamb has done? And just so you know, if it's not, if it's not, I, I don't know, heaven is looking at you kind of weird. If your response is less than total surrender to this one who has set you free from the bondage and slavery of sin, 
and your response is to just give a little bit of worship or a little bit of who you are, heaven's up there going, what? Because they get it. They see the battle for what it is. And again, I know we're here on earth and we're kind of blinded to it, but folks, if you're playing games with Christ, I, this is not a metaphor. Stop it. Stop it. He didn't come and play games on the cross. He shed his blood. He's majestic by his very nature. He's the Lion of Judah. Yet he became like a lamb for us. The whole book of Revelation, again, just to, I hope, please, read the book of Revelation. Don't give up on this book just because some of the imagery is hard to figure out what's going on. Let me give you a few clues, okay? Because it, it, it's, it's just this massive, epic, epic story. Way better than Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, or the Chronicles of Narnia, any of that stuff. Way better. But what you've got throughout the rest of the book, it all revolves around worship. You've got these groups of people. You've got, you've got the bride, and they're worshiping the Lamb, and they're ushering in the new Jerusalem. But then on the other side, you've got worship also, but it's worship of the wrong thing. And it's worship by particular, you've got a harlot or a prostitute who's riding on a beast and who's helping to usher in or trying to keep Babylon. So you've got the lamb or the bride versus the prostitute. You've got the lamb versus the beast. You've got the new Jerusalem versus Babylon. And here's the thing, here's the reality this morning. We all are giving allegiance to one or the other. But you can't do both. You can't do both. Secondly, how must we respond? And I, I, you could do a whole sermon on this, but this is really cool, and I didn't want to pass this up. Secondly, not only in uh, you know, unbridled worship, but... Um, we should respond with hopeful prayer. I gloss over it here, but in verse 8, look at the imagery. The 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and they have golden bowls full of incense. And this kind of imagery and metaphor is all throughout Revelation. And I would argue that it's not just metaphor, it's spiritual reality. But they have golden bowls full of incense, which are what? Which are the prayers of the saints is that in the throne room of God, in all this glory that's going on, you have incense. My wife burns candles, okay? She says my nose doesn't work and I can't smell anything. But I can smell the candles every now and then. And I appreciate it. And the candles make things smell nice. It's like incense. And our prayers are like incense, sweet-smelling aroma. They influence the, the atmosphere, the culture of heaven. Now, heaven is glorious on its own, totally. But look at the connection here between, again, John is caught up into heaven, but look at the connection between what role, what can we do on earth? Folks, we can pray. <laughs> and did you ever, <laughs> this is kind of a weird analogy, but this past year I had some issues at my house with our septic. And so, if you've ever flushed the toilet or washed something down the sink and asked the question, where does that go exactly? I've gotten more answers to that question this past year. You know, I've learned about holding tanks and distribution boxes and leach beds and all this different stuff. 
that I didn't know. I kind of had an idea, but I didn't really know. Well, have you ever asked that question in regards to prayer? Where, where do they go exactly? Beautiful picture. They rise to heaven and they enter the throne room of God and it becomes sweet smelling fragrance to him. And then God takes them and flip over to chapter eight and look at what he does with them. Same imagery, chapter eight, verses three and five. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints so it's the same imagery okay rose before God from the hand of the angel then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder rumblings flashings of lightning and an earthquake here's the image where do our prayers go Seems like they might not be getting past the ceiling. But when we pray them in faith, every single one of them rises as a sweet-smelling fragrance incense before the throne room of God. God's angels then take them. They bring them before the throne. God answers them, and they come back down to earth in the form of lightning and earthquakes and, what else does he say? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and thunder. Now hear me. Those flashes, I don't think it's me like he's doing all bad things. I mean, it goes up in weakness, like it's just incense, but it comes back down in power. Yeah? And you think that your life doesn't matter. You think that your prayers aren't going anywhere. Oh, they're going somewhere. <laughs> they're going somewhere. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. I love, I love this book. All the Bible, man, I love this book of Revelation. It is just absolutely magnificent. A couple things as we close. Number one, as I've already said, read it. Read it. I know it can be hard to handle. And total transparency, for many years of my life, I just didn't get into Revelation because I was just confused. <laughs> I don't, well, you know, just read it. It is the only book in the Bible that says that if you read it out loud, Read it out loud, you will receive a blessing. It says that at the beginning and at the end of the book. Read it out loud to yourself. Don't shrink away from it. Secondly, um, where do you find yourself this morning in regards to having hope? Do you find yourself weeping like John? I'll tell you something, it's a good thing to weep. We should weep over our sin, folks. We should weep over the brokenness of the world. We should weep over all the darkness and all the evil. And we should weep that apart from Christ, like there's no hope. Who's worthy to take the scroll and to make this right? But if you find yourself weeping this morning, as simple as this may sound, again, the answer is to see Christ for whom he really is. This was the answer for John and it's the answer for you. That if you've come in here this morning with hopelessness, with tears only, I understand the tears. Tears are part of it. But if you'll just listen, and if you'll just turn and look and see the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain, it changes everything. You are not on your own. You are, it is not hopeless. Because God has not left us to ourselves. He's working to save us.
Third, um, I would ask you this. How are you seeking to conquer in your life? How are you seeking to uh, nikao, Nike, just do it? Are you seeking to do it in your own strength? Do you think you're a lion? The world tells you you're a lion. The world tells you you're just an overcomer in and of yourself and just reach deep inside and try harder and do, you know, with your best white-knuckled effort. And you can do it, man. No, you can't. And the way that we overcome is, yes, he's called us to victory, but we overcome by following him as little lambs that are weak, that are nothing. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that they overcame the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because they love not their lives unto death. Willing to lay down your life for the sake of Christ. Well, lastly, I would just ask as we close this morning, as I just got done saying, our worship and prayer for you, are they a first response or are they a last resort? It's a big difference. For so many of us, they're a last resort. But the Bible calls us to be those that worship and pray first as our first response to what? To everything. To everything. Father, thanks for this book. Thanks for this chapter. Thanks for this imagery. Thanks for these spiritual realities. Lord, please help us to live in light of it. And Father, for anyone who came in here this morning with tears, weeping, we just claim the promise of your word that's said over and over in Revelation that you, you yourself, will be our God and you will wipe away every tear from our eye. And I pray that you would do that for those that are burdened this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand with me.